0: Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Bruckner and uh, Darren Burgess is out in uh, cyberspace somewhere. Where are you, Berger? Uh Sitting in Adelaide, Brookie. How's uh, things in Melbourne? Uh, yes, yes. Very good. Very good. Beautiful Melbourne. Um, yeah, we're into the, into the football scene again, so uh, football season. So, you know, life's always better in Melbourne when, uh, when they're playing AFL football, which is, uh, which is good. Um, Darren, we have a, uh, a guest on the other side of the world again today. Would you like to introduce him?
1: Yeah, I have a good friend of mine, very experienced practitioner in the in the field of high performance and fitness, specifically for for football or soccer for the Australian listeners. Callum Walsh. G'day, Cal. How are you, mate?
2: I'm very good. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Good. appreciate you staying uh, late
1: at late at night for us, mate. Um, I guess we'll start as we as we typically do by giving us a a rundown of your your experience in the in the industry, and and uh, yeah, we can we can go from there.
2: Yeah, so uh, my journey has been a a bit of an eclectic one, some uh, interesting experiences, it's not been boring, so um, if I kind of scale back all the way to uh, school, not particularly fantastic at school, was big into my sport, Um, as most people were, just wasn't very good at it. Um, College was fairly similar. And then um, randomly in in the place I went to college, a, a gym opened up a really swanky gym. And I thought, I'm quite interested in, in, in fitness and whatnot. I'll, I'll go for a job. And luckily, they put me through my personal training qualifications and, and that type of thing. So I left college at 18 or sixth form. Um, 18 decided I wasn't going to go to university, um, at which point I was still doing a little bit of football coaching so I've probably done that since I was about 15 in terms of coaching and helping out and satellite centers with local teams and so I'd got that sort of bug and then probably two or three years of personal training I got a bit probably bored and I kind of thought I love the football stuff and I love the fitness stuff how you know what can I do that combines both of these um and I started looking into degree programs um and somehow or other I managed to get onto the John Moore Science and Football program. Not sure how, not sure why they accepted me, because it's a very prestigious programming. They must have been shorter numbers that year. Um <laughs> yeah, got on that. Um, had lectures, Barry Druss, James Morton, Warren Gregson, Martin Littlewood, I mean, you name it, the the big names of the industry. So it was fantastic to learn off those guys, but I think in retrospect, looking at some of the people I actually ended up going to uni with and the careers they've had was was really great. At that point, I was working at Liverpool Academy, um, probably from my second year. And was, I was mentioning a little bit earlier that in my first age group was Curtis Jones, Nico Williams was in and around that age group, Layton Clarkson, and they were sort of seven, eight, nine years old. So that's how old. I am. <laughs> uh, guys is fully grown adults playing in the Premier League is, is kind of scary. Um, and then I was kind of, I'd finished my degree, I was doing my sports science degree, I was doing my coaching badges and I was really at a crossroads in my career and I basically had the finances to either do my A licence or my master's degree and... Um, I went and, and, and seen a guy that was very good to me, a guy called Stuart Gelling. I think he was he's gone on to be assistant coach at the Japanese national team or something like that. I, I don't quite know where his career's gone. And I asked him for his advice, and he was so brutally honest that actually almost made me cry. Um, and basically told me this was what twenty or two thousand eight. So if you hadn't played back then, you weren't ever really going to be a coach. It's changed, I think, probably in the past ten years. And he looked at me. He said, "You haven't played. You'll never be a coach. Uh, go down the fitness route." And I was kind of heartbroken because I'd worked so hard. And I was like, "What am I going to do?" And it turned out to be the best advice ever. I went on to do my uh, MSC in strength and conditioning at the University of Bolton. Um, met someone on the course, uh, a League Two club called Shrewsbury Town at the time. They were looking for an SNC coach, so I kept the coaching on at Liverpool Academy. Did the SNC stuff. I think the money Shrewsbury were paying me didn't even cover my petrol to drive from Liverpool to Shrewsbury, okay. uh, which is probably a fairly familiar story. Um, so I was doing that a bit personal, like all sorts, just to get me through my master's degree and, and get the experience. At the end of that year, I got told about an internship at IMG Academy, which was a Nick Bolitieri Tennis Academy in Florida and um, did, what, three or four months out there the best summer of my life it was incredible uh worked from 5 30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night but worked with loads of coaches it was just a fantastic experience to watch lots of different coaches in lots of different sport working lacrosse uh basketball baseball soccer golf and I think I learned a lot about myself as a coach in terms of I think at that point I don't know if you would maybe agree with me back then that was what 2010 2011 it was like to be an S&C coach you had to be the the hard-ass, a strict guy, the guy that True. just shit at people. And and listen, I'm like five foot eight and 67 kg and I'm not an aggressive person. I kind of thought, how can I ever make this as a career? And I, I quickly kind of learned that as long as you're you and you own who you are and you're consistent, groups will kind of come towards you. So we had a real eclectic, there were seven coaches that led different sports and they were all completely different, completely different personalities, but all their groups loved them but they were all authentic to who they were as people. I thought, okay, so that was a real lesson to me. Um, Off the back of that, uh, where did I go next? It's hard for me to keep up now. Um, Went to Cardiff, was there for three years, um, had a promotion, met my wife, incredible experience. Uh, Left to go to another club. That didn't last particularly long um, due to football reasons and a manager going and me following them out the door. Off the back of that, I end up going to Exos, did uh, a year in Brazil with a club called Atletico Perenense, uh, working with the Exos methodology. At the end of that, went to Turkey for Euro 2016, which was just the most mental uh, experience I think I've ever been involved in when you're kind of at your hotel and you're opening a lift door and there's guys with automatic weapons just sat at the lift door. Um, I'm a small, you know, I'm a kid from a small town in, in Somerset in UK. I was kind of like, what am I doing? For that? <laughs> um, so that was an eye opener again. Um, off the back of that, I then went to uh, Aspire in Qatar. I had two years there. Um, obviously world leading organization and, and facility there. Um, and then I did a couple years at Huddersfield and then uh, left there in the summer uh, went to Newcastle. Um, they had a major takeover which everyone thought was a fantastic idea um, didn't work out particularly great for me. Uh, change your manager, change your circumstance and that's where my journey unfortunately with them ended. And that's up to date, I think.
0: That's a great uh, great great journey great journey Bridger.
1: Yeah, I, I guess um yeah we we try not to stay. Too close to the sort of technical um, aspects of our industry uh, on this podcast, and more about you know some of the difficult conversations and the challenging times and things like that. I guess let's start. At um, I'll be fascinated with the Excel stuff, um, if, and if we jump around a bit, um, yeah, you, let's 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 try and keep some sort of system, I guess. But the the Excel stuff, how did you go learning a system and and applying? Um, that system and more or less that system only to an environment? Did you have any challenges? Because you've, you've had enormous amounts of experience, but then to narrow it down to one system, how would you go with that?
2: I, I was probably quite lucky that where it came in my career because I'd had a good amount of experience, but without 15 years' experience behind me. And I think it's interesting because I kind of spoke to Darcy Norman and Darcy Norman was just an incredible... If anyone knows Darcy, he's an incredibly smart man and, and mm-hmm. an even better human being. That I remember being a young practitioner, reached out to him. He didn't know me. He sent me the longest, nicest email back. And I thought, these exos guys have got something. Because a couple of them had done a similar thing. And that kind of fascinated me about it. And then I started delving into it, looking at systems and how everything has not a pattern, but a structure and a way of working. And you know, why go to four if you can't do two and three? And I'm probably quite systematic in what I do every day. Um, You know, it's funny. The, the wife came to the supermarket with me the other day and just completely threw me because I'm like, no, no, oh. I have my, you know, I do this, I do, and I, I'm taking everything off my head. That's just, that's the way I work as a person and it can frustrate people, um, especially, uh, especially my wife. Um <laughs> And it just kind of fit with me and I kind of like, ah, I really like this, the way it's, I don't want to say package, but right, everything's ticked, but it has a structure, but it flexes depending on what day of the week it is, what we're trying to do that the overview, let's say a warm-up, still has four parts to it, but the content of those four parts might differ depending whether you're doing max speed or change of direction. And those types of things, I, I could kind of see the structure, but the Fluidity within it, um, and I was probably really lucky that I got paired with a guy called Scott Perry, who had some really good experience, but had loads of um, soccer experience in the U.S. and had tried to implement a lot of these systems within soccer environments. So he he was able to kind of head off a lot of the problematic things or forewarn us about this might be a little bit strange or this is going to be a bit problematic. So. It was really interesting to see, and it's probably, again, I I took a lot from it, and probably if I look at how I work as a practitioner now, I I wouldn't say necessarily stick with the EXOS methodology, but everything I do, I like to have a system in place, whether that's a return to play or a rehab. you know, If I'm getting someone right on, on the grass on day one, I want his whole plan done for six weeks, so then we can break it down and structure it in, why would he do that before he does that? And almost have like a smooth progression through. And we know that elite sport doesn't always work that way. But at least if you have that plan, you can then flex if the coach says, I need him back a week earlier, you, you know, without just going crazy with it. Um, so, yeah, I I liked it. Um, it made sense in my head. I learned a lot from how to do it, if that makes sense, how to structure it and strategize things. I think that was a key part I took out of that.
1: Yeah, it certainly um, makes sense to have a, I, I guess, a, a, a structure, perhaps not when you're grocery shopping, um, but a set structure, and yeah, and, sorry, um, yeah, and then um, being able to a- adapt off that. What, what happens when the coach does say, uh, whether you're at Sphere, we had a really successful stint there, Newcastle, uh, and the coach says, no, I really need this player. Um, back a week early, I'm going to play them. Um, can you please get them right? So,
2: so, again, I I remember having this kind of, um, I want to say discussion, um, but it was probably an argument, uh, with the head coach that basically was saying the return to play is taking too long with players. And we basically provided, this was our six-week plan, and we had, uh, basically, we had a, a strategy can play for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, all the way up. And he's like, it's too structured. It needs to be more flexible. And for me, I kind of look at it going, you can't be flexible unless you're coming from a structure, if that makes sense. So if you know that you're in a relegation battle and you know it's your star striker, your star centre-back, and you're going to get rushed, if they're trying to push you two or three weeks before, over the two or three weeks, you can be a little bit more aggressive each week because you know what those, let's say, those last three weeks contain. So if you know you're going, let's say, two, three, four out of ten on one week, you might go, well, we can do a three, four, three in that week. So each week gets a little bit more aggressive without it just being in that last week of panic. And for me, unless you've got that structure in that system where you're thinking about it in the cold light of day without any emotion – you can't make those decisions properly that aren't risking anything. And I think coaches are probably right. We're trying to make sure we tick every box. And is that necessarily every single time probably necessary for us as practitioners and physios, is it necessary for the coach? Probably not. Um, So yeah, that was kind of my argument was like, if we have the system in place and you want to cut them down from six weeks to five weeks well, we can take a look in the last two weeks and go, right, how can we be slightly more aggressive here? Because we've got the system in place and we know it works. So then you can take slightly more educated gambles, slightly, slightly more educated risks than just going, well, sod it, we'll do X and we'll do Y because we need to get him ready. And then you're really tossing a coin and thinking, please, God, I hope this,
1: this works. What what would be your non-negotiables in that scenario that that the player must have ticked off before returning to play? I know it depends on the injury, but let's take a, a hamstring injury because they're the most sort of common in all of our codes. What What are your non-negotiables in that space?
2: So... I think some of my non-negotiables would be where they are at in terms of some like their Nordboard testing. And listen, there's, there's lots of different protocols in that um, in terms of some ISO stuff and, and whatever. But whatever you've got your data of of the past year or two years in your protocols, where are they compared to previous? Have they hit max velocity? And where are they at in their, their training load? So for me, if, if they've only been on the grass two or three days and they've accrued four or five kilometres training load, then you're going to ask them to start the game and do 12K, 11K. It's probably a huge risk factor. If you know for a couple of weeks that they've been building up and gradually they've been almost back at a, a normal training week and they've ticked off where they're at in terms of Nordboard, I'm not a huge fan of some of the the isokinetic testing. That's just a personal preference. But as long as the physios have their testing that they've worked with for a period of time, and they feel comfortable going, he's back to where we feel. And then you've taken them on the pitch and you've exposed them to the worst case scenario. And I'm talking not just ticking it over a 20 or 30 meter. I like to get them 40 to 55 meters, probably a little bit longer and see how they are. And I think I'll always build them up in that in terms of taking them through 80, 85, 90, 95. And one of the key factors to me is if when you're taking them for stride-outs at 80 and 85, they start creeping into 95 organically, I think the player feels fairly comfortable. So regardless of the data, they actually feel comfortable. And I was having a conversation with, with someone at my old club today, and there was a young player that was signed, and he was a quick player, and he had three or four horrific hamstring injuries back-to-back. And everyone's saying, he's just lost that, that yard of pace. There's nothing on the scans, nor boards, right? So, has he actually lost anything, strength and power-wise, or does he just not feel comfortable fully releasing the handbrake because he doesn't trust his own body? So, I think there's a there's a couple of facts in those, but those would be my non-negotiables.
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a um, interesting. Probably the thing for me that I took out of that is uh that's worth discussing is the uh the fact that you take them to 40 to 50 meters which is a really interesting um aspect and something I do as well but I'd love to hear your your theory
2: on that yeah so in in terms of some of my exposure um I'll be honest it's stuff taken off um some some far great practitioners than me so I think I've spoken to sort of JB Marin about this, this sort of stuff. And it's kind of like, you've got to remember these guys aren't sprinters. So when I hear people talking about exposing them at 95% for 65, 75 metres, or box to box at 95%, for me, soccer players, they're not sprinters. They don't have the form to hold that sort of speed for that amount of distance. However, I think when you're in rehab, you've probably got to hit the longer distance. I think JB Marin, I think there was a, at the sports surgery clinic, uh, they they did a running symposium and a lot of the research there was talking about getting towards that 45, 50 meters. And it was, we usually do about five to six seconds over that distance. We work out what their 95% is. Um, and that was something we kind of worked out that they've got to feel comfortable doing that. Um, but then it was kind of supported by far greater people in terms of um, J.B. Marin and the Spanish, uh, I can't pronounce it, is it Mediguchi? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so some of the work that they've done in terms of uh, of the rehab stuff. So something that we kind of organically uh, hypothesized and then had been doing it, had, had good results and then Obviously, when you start reading around some of the research, it kind of backed up what our, our gut feel was on it. What, what are your feels towards it? Well, I guess it, there's two schools of thought,
1: and, and you talk about the worst-case scenario, which comes into this, because a lot of research around those people uh, that, are, as you say, far smarter than you and I, um, they say that the hamstring is at its weakest around about that period in a sprint. Um, now, that's typically in, as you say, in, in sprinters, but even in some field sport athletes, the hamstring is at it under its most strain, I should say, rather than weakest at about that time. So even though you might have a central midfielder who doesn't, you know, or rarely covers that 40 to 50 metres at max velocity, um, should you not take that central midfielder's uh, previously injured hamstring to its weakest point and structure test it. Um, and that's that's something that I've always thought you should do, um, which goes against a lot of, I guess, my other principles, which are keep it specific to the sport and the requirements. Um, but I think when you've got an injured muscle, um, yeah, you should stress test it in, in, as you say, in the worst case scenario, um, which would be, at its potentially uh, at the point where it's under the most strain which
2: i, I think that's really interesting because i probably came up with something and this isn't to do with hamstring injuries i think this is more terms with sort of like chronic load and, and, and training players quite hard and we've all been on benches where a lad's gone down with an injury and soft tissue injury after 15 minutes or a sub that's just come on or whatever it is i would rather and this is just me. I'm, I'm not saying it. <laughs> I'm not saying it's right. I would rather break them in training than break them in the game. And I think there's there's a couple of reasons for that. For me, I think if someone breaks in the middle of the week on Wednesday and you're playing Saturday, the head coach gets his head around it in time for the weekend. The lads get the head in time. Oh, we've not got player X. Okay, it's going to be player Y, and they get it. I think when particularly if it's an important player, if they break down. I think it can throw game plans into a complete tizz. I think it can throw the coach off his game altogether. And I think it kind of can be a bit of a gut punch to some of those plays. Take Liverpool versus Man City, April 9th, massive game. If all of a sudden Mohamed Salah gets injured in the 12th minute, it will be a bit of a gut punch or Virgil van Dijk or whoever it is for Man City. It will be a gut punch for the lads in a vital, vital game. And that might be the five or six minute period that they lose all momentum. And that can be the crucial turning point. Um, yeah, so, so I always think you're best kind of doing the worst case thing in training because I'd rather everyone break in training than, than in the game. And it kind of throws game plans, players' mentality and all those sorts of things, especially when there's a lot of high emotion around a game. Uh, I just think it's preferable, but that's that's me.
1: I agree, mate. I I think it's absolutely uh, more – not beneficial, that's the wrong word, but it's a better outcome uh, for (laughs) someone to go down in training rather than games, and I think you know – and, and just as importantly, your players know that um, they've been stress tested before going into the ultimate stress test, which is a game, particularly a game like a City versus Liverpool or, or something like that. So I think that we under, um, undervalue that feeling that a player, when, when a player goes onto the pitch, the field, the, the court and he or she knows that she's done the work Required to um, be at their best for the next 90 minutes.
2: I, I, I mean, I always think about it. It's, it's like when we used to go into exams, like how much better did you feel when you'd actually done the prep and, yes. the <laughs> and it's And you're not saying it's not going to go wrong, but if, if you know you've done everything and you know you've sprinted at 95%, you go, I'm all right here. Yeah. So then if the ball gets clipped in behind and you're chasing a striker down, it's you're not even having a half a second hesitation of going, can I? Because at the elite level, it might be that half a second hesitation that decides the game. So you need to take all those conscious thoughts out of them. So it's just complete subconscious back to what they would always do.
0: Yeah, I never had that uh, feeling with exams, but anyway, um, one one thing, uh, one thing is, I mean, how do you know when someone is going at at full speed? Obviously, the, you want to get people to sprint at maximum speed during training. Now, obviously, you guys have you know fancy equipment, GPS, and so on. But what about the you know the guys looking after the the you know the uh, the amateur team or whatever that doesn't have access to GPS and so on? Um, we know that you know the people you talked about are probably reluctant to push themselves that final little. Two or three percent to go to go flat out. How do you get them to do that on the training track and and not, you know, wait till the game when they do it and then they do their
2: hamstring? Uh, I, I think that there's a couple of factors for, on this for me. I think we I've tried everything because players players never used to really like sprinting or, or putting the hammer down because it was almost this kind of. Well, I don't want to put my hammy, so I won't sprint. And then I won't get And then it becomes a cyclical thing of, well, when you do sprint in a game, you get a tight, all these sorts of issues. So I think there's a couple of things. I think if I was going more amateur based, I'd go along the line of races, as stupid as that sounds, because people get competitive. I tend to stay away from longer races with professional athletes because, again, my fear with them is that because they're not. Sprinters and technically, soccer players are pretty crappy high-speed mechanics. But they'll either have the fast switch or they'll have the strength to to produce really high speeds. Is that what I don't want them to do? Is tighten up and start overstriding, backside mechanics go out, and then you come in a whole world of problems because lads are trying to do stuff that they're not actually capable of doing. Let's say you try and run Thiago Silva against Mohamed Salah it 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 just ain't going to work. So what you don't want to do is put one player in a position of uncomfort to try and get to a point just because he's competitive. So I've always tend to go by a pure pure maths thing, which work out our lads' top speed that we've got, work out how many metres that is per second, and then times that by five seconds. And then I will literally say to the lads you've got five seconds to get from pole A to pole B and I'll say go and I'll give them a countdown and it's not perfect, but generally you'll get them in around 90 to 95%. I don't, I'm not really keen on them. If they happen to organically get over 95%, I'm happy. Um, but yeah, who would have thought at school that basic maths would have come in so handy. Um, yeah, like if, if their top speed is 10 meters per second and I want to get them at 90 it's nine meters per second. So if I'm timesing that by five, what's that? Forty-five. Um, done. You know, it's it's that distance in five seconds.
0: Fair enough. Go, Benjamin.
1: But a question, um, just to, to take us slightly off off the technical. You've seen in your time uh, a lot of sort of high-performance staff setups and things like that. Um, How would you say – what are the features of the best departments in terms of um, the ones that run the most smoothly and you've enjoyed your time the most in? Um,
2: I I think there's two departments that stick out an absolute country mile to me, which was uh, my first one at Huddersfield Town um, at Cardiff City and then the next one at Huddersfield Town and cardiff was probably one of my first environments and it was quite ruthless and at the time i thought everyone's being really lazy everyone just delegates (laughs) and and generally at the time i didn't get it but i loved it and i remember i had a performance guy called richard collins who is a very good friend of mine very good mentor to me he's head of medical at west ham brilliant so we didn't have a gym at Cardiff at the time and he came to me and just said Cal what sort of equipment would you want in a gym so I went away gave him a list he went okay there's a budget make it happen and I went what he went just make sure it's ready day one pre-season I was like yeah but what's the gaff one no no it's on you day one pre-season it's got to be ready and that was it and You've got the autonomy to either build a bridge or hang yourself. And if that gym wasn't ready, they weren't, in. not just Rich, but Malky wasn't interested in, yeah, but this guy didn't get But No, no. If you got to go and knock on his door, I don't care. Find his address, knock on his door. It's on you. Make it happen. But because they gave you so much ownership, and that might be a project on – return to play or what can we do better for the goalkeepers? It was your whole project. No one else was involved in that. And then you presented back on that and they gave you the autonomy to do it as best as you could. And because they gave you so much autonomy and you had so much respect for people like Rich and Malky, you never wanted to let them down. So you worked your absolute nuts off to be like, this. Look, look how good I am. Look how good I am because you just didn't want to let them down. Whereas probably if they kind of micromanaged you, you'd be a bit like, oh, sod off. Like, I don't want to do it that way. And you get this kind of, not bitterness, but be like, well, I want it this way, but they want it that way. There was none of that. It was just like, that's your role and responsibility. Do it. And if it's not right, I'm coming for you. But I'm not ever going to tell you what to do. If you tell me as a physio, he can play 63 minutes, he'll play 63 minutes. That's it. Done. And that, if he's out for six weeks, if he's out for five weeks in one day, that's it. But if you tell me he's out for six weeks and he comes back in his first game and he does his hammy, It's on you. Because I've not forced you to push this. So from an autonomy point of view, that was unbelievable. And I've tried to work that way. We tried to do, rejig our sort of pre-training prep at Huddersfield. And I just kind of said to the lads, I don't think it's good enough at the minute. It's kind of, Jab on for four years, on you, make it good. It's got to be ready for day one preseason. So I completely stole their methodology of, of getting the idea. And the lads came back with the best piece of work I've ever seen in my life. That even if I wanted to, I couldn't have dreamed what they would have done. So that's the kind of thing, first of all, I believe in kind of giving people autonomy. But you've got to hold people accountable. That That's the key thing is you can't just give it to them then and not hold them accountable. And then the other part was... When I went to Huddersfield, we had John Iger, who um, I don't yeah. know either. Of you like, and John had again harbored a really good environment. So we would be in our medical meetings, and everyone had a voice. Everyone had a say. Zero ego in the room. I got player X, and oh, Jim you know what? he's not responding to this, this, and this. And someone might be, have you tried this? And you're like, you're right, I haven't tried that. Or someone be like oh, he's got this, but that's not my strong area. Can so-and-so help me? And you'd be like, yeah. And it would be almost like, do you know what? I did that. For example, someone might have broke down and someone else going, do you know what? I maybe did that and that was for. And everyone was just open and honest. And because everyone was open and honest and no one got the finger point at them, you could actually get to the crux of the problem. Do you know what? You did A and I did B. And as a combination, it didn't work. So let's not do A and B again. Let's do A or B and if it's A and B are needed, let's kind of talk about it before because this is what's happened. But because there was no finger-pointing and there was it was a safe room that John Iger had really created that everyone kind of owned up like, hey, do you know what? I really dropped the bollock out there like it wasn't right or do you know what? I'm really struggling with that. And the floor was open and, and we had a really eclectic staff where we'd had lads that had just been at Huddersfield, lads that had been all over the world, other lads that had been – um, from rugby backbones, other lads that have been from lower leagues. One of the masseuses has been in football like 40 years, old school, great guy. And sometimes he'd be like, have you thought of that? And you're like, no, I had not thought of that. But it's a bloody good idea. Hmm. You know, but if you would speak about the latest research, would he have had a clue on it? And you're like, probably not. But he's got 40 years experience in those meetings because he had a voice. He felt that every so often, do you know what? Have you tried that? You're like, Christ, I didn't even think of that. Cheers, mate. And everyone was kind of there to help. Um, and those were the two biggest environments that I've worked in that help staff thrive in terms of creating a safe environment where people go, do you know what? I was wrong. I don't know what to do. Can I have some help? And has anyone got any ideas on it? And then the other one of, that's your project. Run with it and do it better than anyone.
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to. Um, it doesn't just come down to, but one of one of the practitioners that you and I uh, admire, um, well, she is is uh, Martin Bouchard, and his his uh, yeah. book on ego, and it just comes down to that. And I love the giving the staff autonomy to do their roles, and just giving them trust in that, and then keeping them accountable, of course, um, but giving them the trust. Uh, to do that just uh the safety that and, and the um ownership that that creates is, is just outstanding it's invaluable
2: yeah absolutely and and it's probably the one thing that i've learned that you'll never ever ever be failed to impress to be impressed by what these people come up with when you say here's your project own it and then you go listen do you need anything like i'm here and they might come back to an idea off you And they'll always surprise you. Honest, when this piece of work got presented back to me, I was like, holy crap. Like, (laughs) the amount of time and effort. Like, these lads were going in all summer. Like, they were meet up at, like, a a coffee shop on Friday nights. I'm like, I don't want you to do that. Like, but because they were so invested and because it was theirs, they wanted to spend their free time doing it. And And a couple of lads worked together on it. And it was like, this is really powerful. Because they're engaged in what they're doing, they're not just rolling out something that I think's good. So guess what? They put all the effort into it. So when they're actually coaching it, because they're the ones that are going to be coaching it, they can create better buying because they know the the program inside out and what they're doing, and they can get the players on board easier as well.
1: Exactly, exactly.
2: Um, now we we are
1: coming towards the end of the of the podcast, mate. We really appreciate your time, particularly late at night.
0: Sure.
1: The Newcastle experience, experience that Rookie and I have both been through at, at different times. Um, how how have you gone since then? We don't need to talk about the details uh, around that. Um, but was it a surprise, I guess? And, uh, yeah, for, for those practitioners who haven't been to it and what are the lessons that you've learnt um, from there? And, uh, yeah, how would it make you um, – hopefully a better practitioner going forward or at least a more aware practitioner. Um, yeah. If you don't mind talking about it, mate. I don't know. Sometimes these things can be a bit difficult.
2: Of course not. I, I think it is a really hard process to go through. Um, I went through it once before um, from the outset. I mean, I remember speaking to you initially when I got awarded the role, burjo and it was like, I've been working. I've been grafting to try and get a role at this sort of level, head of sports science at a Premier League club. It's a dream for so many practitioners. I've worked in the Premier League, but with what I could kind of call newly promoted sides—not really established Premier League sides—and it's a different ball game. Working for for teams that are, you know, going to war with with a water pistol. It, you know, it's it's not actually any fun working in the Premier League with a newly promoted side. It is grueling. <laughs> um, and I was so excited and pleased and, and everything that went along with it. I'd kind of been selected. It wasn't through knowing a manager. It had been advertised. It had been recruited properly. So I felt really, and I don't say it often about myself, I kind of felt really proud that I'd achieved that in my career. And the takeover happened. Then you start to panic a little bit. And you think, well, this could either be me for the next 10 years and I could – build an empire, and I could do this, this, and this, or this could go horribly wrong. Um, then the manager went, a um, little bit of interim, and then I'm not a betting man, um, but I've never spent so much time on Skybet in my life. Who's a favourite? <laughs> one to two, to one. It's Fonseca, right? Who does Fonseca have as his staff? No, it's Unai Emery, right? Does Unai Emery have a fitness coach? Oh, no, it's this guy. Does he have it? A- and what you're doing is constantly looking at some random names that you think well as you got coaches you got analysts and you're literally uh praying and hoping that they don't and and that's a uh, the the cruel reality of it and we got to a point that um i think una emery had turned the the role down i don't know this this just from sky sports not that i've been told anything in the club and i remember it was obviously linked to eddie howe and we were flying down to brighton and it was one of the most awkward trips I've ever been on. So Eddie Howe was due to come to the game at Brighton, not met obviously any of the staff. He hadn't agreed anything, and obviously all the staff were kind of flicking through Twitter, seeing, know, is he coming? Has anything been agreed? Because it was almost like, oh, he might be in the changing room before the game, and we flew down to Brighton and we landed. And I remember as we landed, everyone turned their phones on and everyone went on Twitter. And the, the Chronicle had kind of published an article. Looks like Eddie Howe pretty much nailed on. He's going to bring this staff member, this staff member, this staff member, and head of fitness, so-and-so. And I remember simultaneously maybe 14, 15 staff just turned and looked at me as if, like, shit, have you seen this? Um, and I was like, but, you know, we could, everyone turned at me at the same time. And I was like, right, and then it was, then you go to dinner and no one's saying anything at the table. Even I remember one of the masseuses who's a really nice guy, really quiet guy. And I was walking down the corridor, back in the room, and he's like, You kind of scolded up me. You're right. I'm like, Yeah. He's like, Sure. I'm like, Yeah. He's like, Need anything? Let me know. Because everyone just knows it's a crap situation. And probably even worse, I'd only moved to club five months before, six months before, something like that. Um, and then you do the game and, I was in there in the game and all of a sudden there you see on the you know on the hawkeye that they have some of the TV footage and Eddie Howe comes in the crowd and I'm like, okay, this is going ahead. And then I kinda had a couple of days at the club and I thought it probably happen right away. It didn't happen right away, it happened a week or two later down the line, and things happen in football and you know, people want their own people in and, and that is what it is. I, I think the post part of it i found harder and i don't think people probably realize the impact that has on people's lives and this isn't saying deep or anything but the big story particularly in england and i'm sure probably in world football at the time was newcastle going into january transfer window so sky sports was full of who newcastle were buying talk sport full of who newcastle was buying. And all you could see for six weeks was Newcastle, 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 Newcastle. And the only way I can describe it is it's a bit like your missus leaving you and then you going home and you turn on the TV and she's on Love Island. And you're <laughs> I can't this is like everyone's gonna be talking about it. And it's literally two months of everyone that's all everyone's talking about. And you're trying to get away from it, you get to the guy, you go to the gym, but it's on talk sport, or you sit and you're like, it's just so in your face, it it's it's hard um, and it's not easy to deal with it, and it's natural to go through uh, kind of a, a kind of a bitterness I have to say that the club were unbelievable the club were brilliant towards me it's nothing I, I cannot say a bad word about Newcastle United Football Club it's an amazing club um, the staff there were brilliant the doc was fantastic uh, uh, Paul Katerson, um, great man was, was very good to me um, But there's just that kind of bit in your throat where you're like, oh, like, through no fault of my own. Like, listen, if I'd gone there and had an absolute horror show and I'd I'd done really badly, I'd hold my hands and go, do you know what, is what it is, like I wasn't cut out for it. You know, that's no, I'd rather die trying than kind of live in wonder. And it wasn't, we were in a good place. We were in the top two or three for intensity markers in the Premier League, one injury. There wasn't a lot more we could have done uh, or I could have done, I, I, I don't think. And it's kind of like just because a decision gets made and and when a manager comes in, he's, he's the messiah. Um, so whatever they kind of say, go. And unfortunately, the vast majority of times that managers come in, it's when teams are struggling. So higher up, people are going to listen to what they say. So that was really tough, I think. I think looking back, everything kind of happens for, for reasons. I know that's probably a bit cheesy or a bit corny to, to look back on, but I think it it will turn out. It was a, a great experience to know that I, I got awarded that job off my own back through the proper processes. And I'm like, well, I must be doing all right to a point. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think I could have done any more. So I take that with me going forward that I can – I know I can work at a Premier League level as a as a head of department, um, bit sad the way it ended, but I'm quite lucky that <laughs> my wife, you know, she's and the ironic thing was, was when, <laughs> when I actually got the news that it was happening was my wife was actually coming up to Newcastle for the weekend. We were going to go Christmas shopping. And um, I get called into the office and she was on the train. And I was like, she's already, she's literally half an hour away from Newcastle. What the heck am I going to tell her? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we end up, funnily enough, having the weekend in Newcastle and getting out our system. There was a couple of beers sunk i I can't, can't lie. And yeah, you know, she said, listen, you wanted the big roles. This is what's going to happen with them. That was your decision. You could have stayed being a number three fitness coach and or whatever, and be safe and be at the same club for 15 years, but you chose not to do that. This ain't the first time it's going to happen and it won't be the last. So get on with it. Um, so it's nice that she was really sympathetic towards me, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but sometimes you need that. And um, I think it was just, I think probably the part I found hard, I don't know how, how you found it in, in your time is, when it happens at Premier League level, it is all you're seeing is Premier League news 24-7 and it's so in your face, it's hard to get away from.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, with me, I just switched off from it and um, yeah, just completely now yeah there was there was a lot of uh I found it hard when people like yourself and and good friends in the industry just contacted to w- well meaning people um but yeah I, I tried to switch off from all of it and just just sort of focus on exactly what you said um which i think is really important and I'm glad that you you mentioned it um that's what happens sometimes in these roles and also um it was through um yeah, you you proved that you could do it, so um, that was the the sort of focus, I guess. Um, for me, I I didn't you know listen to any of the news or Sky Sports or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, that analogy of Mrs. on Love Island, I never never watched an episode, but I can imagine what it would be.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I think I've watched one or two episodes, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> He yeah.
1: watches it all the time. Oh,
2: no, I got a question for both of you.
0: Um, do you sort of understand why why managers want to bring in their own people, and do you think it's a good way of uh, of operating? I mean, if uh, if, if you owned a club, for instance, and a manager says, you know, I want to bring in my fitness guy, and you know, you've got a really good fitness guy, do you, you know, what what would be your attitude? Yeah, I'll,
1: I'll go first. Well, she... um. Yes, I can understand it. I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. I, I can't imagine any other industry where they would just get rid of a lot of the IP that's been built up um, in that in that, uh, domain-specific field. Um, I, I don't quite get that, um, but I can absolutely understand it because most managers, are, you know, there's stats around about the average lifespan of a manager, so why wouldn't they bring people that they could trust in? um i think it's incumbent on clubs to maybe do things differently and um, i think most managers would go to a club like newcastle um, regardless of whether they could bring every single member of their staff Um, so yeah i think it's incumbent on clubs but i can absolutely understand managers who want to do that
2: I think for me, that there's two parts to this question. Um, the one that kind of frustrates me the most is every manager has their own different things they are a little bit quirky about. It might be skin folds, it might be fitness, it, wh- whatever these things are. So, for example, why when Antonio Conte goes into Tottenham, does he then start talking about, let's say, the player's skin folds are too high? it shouldn't matter what manager it is, whether it's Antonio Conte, Joe's me as a KPI for those players, they should have physical KPIs. They should be hitting with that skinfold, aerobic markers, ABCD, whatever, because you're a professional athlete that the club are paying whatever they are a week. And I'm not just talking about Premier League. I'm talking about League Two as well. There should be certain standards that you should meet, like as a, Member of staff, if you don't do so many CPD events in a year, you lose your accreditation. Like it or not, that's that's what you sign up for. So these players should have what I say sort of physical KPI markers that even if a new manager comes in and goes, I really don't care about skin folds. Well, as a club, what we're investing in is, no, we do care. The manager might not, but these are your individual KPIs that we think as a club, because we're funding your wages, are important. So I think there's that. Those physical KPIs shouldn't fluctuate depending who the manager is. But I think the one thing that I kind of learned in the Newcastle process is we have to make up our minds about fitness coaches, one way or the other. When I'm in that situation at Newcastle, you've got the physios who, with all due respect, aren't worried, aren't nervous, because they're club members of staff. You've got analysts not really worried. They're club members of staff you got the coaches who come in with the manager, whoever that is, go, well, when the manager goes, I'm going to go. Like, they just know that's that's their lifespan. When the manager goes, they go. And then when the manager gets a new job, they'll get a new job. The problem is with the fitness coach is, is it's heads or tails. The new hmm. guy comes in, doesn't want a fitness coach. The new guy comes in, does want a fitness coach. And I've had friends in the past couple of weeks that have both profited – and sacrifice because one manager did and one manager didn't. So guess what? One of them got a promotion and those are great things and, and all those. But we have to make a decision because either it's going to be the club guy and he's going to work with every manager and has all the intel on all the players and where they're training loads, which is, I think, really important for a manager. Or you say, no, he's part of the coaching staff and they get shipped in with. And guess what? When the manager goes they go because then what fitness coaches start to do is then they'll start associating themselves with the manager, whether that's right, wrong or indifferent, at least they know if you're a first team coach and assistant manager, you know, you have to associate yourself with a manager or you don't get jobs, but fitness coaches, for example, I'm 37 now. I think I've had a fairly okay career. I've never been associated with a manager. So that's been really positive in trying to build my career and I've learnt loads and whatever. But it's obviously cost me as well. But if I know the game going forward, every time someone goes to a club, they're going to need a manager. It starts to become like a, a system where, for example, let's talk about Steve Bruce leaves leaves Newcastle, goes to his new club, West Brom. They've, obviously, the previous fitness coach, will have gone because he goes with the manager everywhere. And then he's got to find a fitness coach. Even if he doesn't really care who it is, he's got to go, well, I've worked with these three. Which one of them's available? At least he's bringing one in as part of his staff. If that makes any, I'm not sure if I'm really being clear on that or not.
0: Yeah, it's a really difficult uh, scenario, and you can see both sides to it from the manager's of course, point yeah. of view and, and from the from the club's point of view but uh, I agree I mean the club needs to be stronger and, and stand up to uh, to managers if they've got a really good person that you know they've invested a lot in and uh, as you say they have a huge amount of IP but uh, most clubs tend to roll over when managers make their demands because they're so desperate to get the, that particular manager and uh, they'll they'll uh, they'll cave in, which is I think really
2: disappointing but uh, you know uh, anyway. uh, the other is. Is they can probably find a slightly different avenue for that member of staff instead of getting rid. You, you know, like w- what other work can they fund that might not be the head of whatever, but can they get going? There's probably a hundred and one projects at every club that they've wanted to do from a science and innovation part uh, that they've never done. That they've now got someone that's almost out out of work, but they've worked with for five six years. They trust them as a practitioner. They've invested in them can that not be a sidestep, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it yeah there's sense. certainly other options for sure. Mm, yeah. But the, uh, yeah, the person coming in is going to feel threatened if they, you know, the previous person is there, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a, it's a complex uh, issue. But, look, uh, we've run out of time, guys. Um, in fact, we've gone over time. I'll be in trouble here. Um, but, uh, Callum, thank you very much uh, again for Giving us your time, and particularly uh, late at night in, in the UK, you will certainly look with interest, uh, look on with interest to see what your next uh, your next movie is. I'm sure it'll be uh, be an interesting one, and uh, and you'll do a great job. But uh, we really appreciate your time tonight, and, uh, and thank you for uh, for coming on the Brookie and Berger podcast.
2: No worries. Thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate it, guys. Cheers, Walshy. Cheers, mate. Yeah.